Thanks, Jaden. Thanks, team. Is this good? It's on. Cool. So, I wonder, have you ever pretended to be a spy? Like, as a kid or as an adult, I found myself doing this the other week. I was going down the hallways and ended up sliding around the corner, and thankfully no one was there uh, at home. But uh, maybe, maybe you've done that. Or maybe you've pretended uh, to be princesses or princes and played stories like that or heard stories of that, loved stories like that, where someone needs rescuing, something has to be done. Whenever we do a youth group camp, all the kids, they'll constantly ask, can we play, can we play, can we play Spotlight? Can we play Spotlight? Can we play Spotlight tonight? They love the game Spotlight, creeping through the bush, trying to get to an objective, trying to get somewhere. The odds are stacked against you, but there's still a glimmer of hope of success, a hope of achievement, having a mission to be on. I think it brings us alive, doesn't it? I think all good games have objectives to achieve. Think about different games, like board games, where you might try and get the most amount of money, most amount of points. You're trying to achieve something. Video games, where you, uh, we spend a lot and a lot and a lot of time trying to match up coloured jewels in a row, trying to achieve something. Or a different sort of video game, trying to protect the earth or the universe from evil. Well, I want to propose today that this desire for accomplishing something This desire, this striving for achieving is in fact God-given. It's ingrained in us because God is on a mission himself. God has a mission and remarkably God is calling us to be a part in that mission with him. And having a mission, I don't know about for you, but for me it is enticing. It sounds enticing, something to be called out into. So, The short story we're going to look at today comes from the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 10, which is just after Jesus has been baptized and he's done collecting up some of his followers and he turns his face and he faces towards Jerusalem. He looks towards Jerusalem. He's still a long way off, he's still got lots of things to do before he gets there, but he sets his sight on this mission, on this task, and he's looking towards Jerusalem. He knows what he wants to achieve. And so today we're going to ask the question, let's ask We'll look at what does Jesus' mission involve? What does it look like? Who is it for? And we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, 1 to 20 to do that. We'll read through it now, and then we'll unpack it as we go. So later, the master selected 70 and sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he intended to go. He gave them this charge. What a huge harvest, and how few the harvest hands. So... On your knees, ask the God of the harvest to send harvest hands. On your way, but be careful, this is hazardous work. You're like lambs in a wolf pack. Travel light. Comb and toothbrush and no extra luggage. Don't loiter and make small talk with everyone you meet along the way. When you enter a home, greet the family. Peace. If your greeting is received, then it's a good place to stay. But if it's not received, take it back and get out. Don't impose yourself. Stay at one home, taking your meals there. For a worker deserves three square meals. Don't move from house to house looking for the best cooking town. 
When you enter a town and are received, eat what they set before you. Heal anyone who is sick and tell them God's kingdom is right on your doorstep. When you enter a town and are not received, go out in the street and say, the only thing we got from you is the dirt on our feet and we're giving it back. Did you have any idea that God's kingdom was right on your doorstep? Sodom will have it better on judgment day than the town that rejects you. Doom, Chorazin. Doom, Bethsaida. If Tyre and Sidon had been given half the chances given you, they'd have been on their knees long ago, repenting and crying for mercy. Tyre and Sidon will have it easy on judgment day compared to you. And you, Capernaum, do you think that you're about to be promoted to heaven? Think again. You're on a mudslide to hell. The one who listens to you, listens to me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And rejecting me is the same as rejecting God who sent me. Later on, the 70 came back triumphant. Master, even the demons danced to your tune. Jesus said, I know. I saw Satan fall, a bolt of lightning out of the sky. See what I've given you. Safe passage as you walk on snakes and scorpions. And protection from every assault of the enemy. No one can put a hand on you. All the same, the great triumph is not in your authority over evil, but in God's authority over you and presence with you. Not what you do for God, but what God does for you. That's the agenda for rejoicing. So that's our passage. That's our story for today. It has some nice simple bits and it has some challenging bits in it as well. But what does Jesus' mission involve? We'll ask that question. What does it look like and who is it for? Well, firstly, Jesus' mission involves all of his followers. And what's it for? To help announce that God is close. Jesus sends them out into the towns that he's about to go into. And he sends out, at the outset, he sends out a big group of people, 70 or 72 some translations say, because there's a bit of uncertainty as to which number it should be. But either way, it's probably a symbolic number anyway. Uh, it might be pointing to a number, a significant group uh, from Genesis perhaps, like Moses's elders who numbered around about 70. Or maybe it's talking about the fact that seven and the different derivatives of seven is a holy number, a complete number. It's a good number in the ancient world. It was a common belief that numbers could be read in different ways in the ancient world. It wasn't just for strict counting and auditing purposes. So whatever the meaning, however many people there were, we've got a large group of people, a large group of Jesus followers. They're sent out. And they're to do a similar job that John the Baptist has to do, to prepare the way for Jesus to come through. Go out into the towns that Jesus is about to go through and prepare the way. Now, if we look throughout the, uh, the rest of the Bible, some of the other Gospels, there are some similar stories in the other Gospels. In Matthew, there's a similar account, but there he only sends out 12 of the disciples. He also does that in Luke, in chapter 9. So the story that we have here with the 70 is actually unique to the book of Luke, but there are some similarities throughout the other Gospels. But we see that Jesus is now moving. He's on his mission towards Jerusalem. He set his sight on where he wants to go. And the rest of the book of Luke unpacks this journey, tells this journey, tells this story. This journey ultimately, ultimately leads to his death and then to his resurrection 
in Jerusalem. But Jesus knows where he wants to go. On the way, on the way to Jerusalem, he teaches. On the way, he heals. On the way, he declares. And he shows through action and word that God's kingdom is close. And this act of sending out the 70 is to prepare the towns ahead so that they can hear some of this message. So they, could, they can be on the lookout for God. But they were not to do this in their own strength. This is a huge task. This is a big mission. This is a massive harvest, Jesus says, which God is actually really in charge of. This must be given to God. Jesus commands his followers to pray, to ask God to bless and expand the work that Jesus is sending them out to do. First thing, pray, ask God to grow the amount of workers. And we see that they are to go out in pairs. They get a buddy, probably for safety as they're traveling around the ancient world. Uh, Also, it forms a more credible witness when two people rock up telling the same story rather than just one person. It's acknowledged from the outset, though, that this is going to be tough. This is going to be dangerous work. Like sheep among wolves, Jesus says. But... Despite this danger, Jesus still sends out his disciples. He's not content to have formed his group of followers, formed the group of people that want to follow him, and then just bunker down, lock the doors, and just play it safe. He doesn't turn his back on the world, the reason why he came, just to focus on this group of friends that he's got, these devout followers, this comfortable collection of people. His eyes are constantly on his mission, and he requires his followers to do so as well. And I was challenged during the week with this idea, this idea of playing it safe. I have a tendency to gather lots of data, information before moving into action, to gather more data and more data and more measurements and more measurements, assess the risks, measured once, twice, three times, maybe check some more data, be it constructing something, be it trying to plan a toddler jam Christmas party, make sure all the details are right. I can find myself getting stuck in the detail, uh, preventing me from actually stepping out into action. And the, the danger for me is being content just to play it safe and make sure it's safe. So if playing it safe is on one end of an extreme, recklessness might be on the other, and I don't think that's wise either. Earlier, now Jesus says, don't build a tower without first counting the cost. Don't just rush in headfirst into everything without knowing how much it's going to cost you or what the dangers are. But we see here, Jesus has counted the cost. He knows some of the details and then he sends them out. Out you go. And it's noteworthy that it's not just the closest three that he sends out. It's not just the well-known 12 disciples that he sends out, though he does do that earlier in Luke as well, as we said. But he sends out this large group, anyone who is willing to follow, anyone who is willing to call themselves followers of Christ. So we learn that everyone who follows Jesus has a missional role to play. Now, absolutely, there are different roles that can be fulfilled. But this point, I think, is valuable to get our heads around and be reminded about, that we all have a place in the missional work of Christ, the mission that God is on. As we remember this, as we reflect on this, as we step out into this, we are to remember that God is Lord of the harvest. 
that God is the one that is sending out workers. And for anyone who responds, well, they are then to join in with this missional work. They are to be sent out as workers, as harvest hands as well, because that's the prayer that Jesus says to pray, that we'd find more harvest hands. So, we learn that Jesus' mission involves all of his followers, and next we see that Jesus' mission involves going out to do specific things, to serve as well as to proclaim the kingdom of God. So, it's at this point that Jesus steps into some specific instructions. What are they to do? How are they actually to do it? They're to limit their attachment to worldly possessions, their attachment, their self-dependence on what they can achieve. They are to travel light. They're to move around easily. And he says that they're to stay on the task at hand, not get distracted by gossip at the water cooler or any other distractions that people might bring and try and stop them from uh, completing their journey, their mission. We see that they are to enter a home and then greet the family with a word, peace. And in some research I found, they say that this is a fairly common greeting for Jews to say. might be something like, good morning, that we would say today, which I assume when I reflect on that, at least in part, we're saying, I wish you a good morning. I hope you are having a good day. Peace. These followers, they're representing Jesus. And he says, in doing so, that a step into a place in peace, peacefully. No Bible bashing, verse wielding, condescending, no judgmental, eyebrow-raising, furrow, holding back, just with peace, wishing peace on and for the people that are being met. That's the first instance in how they are to interact with the people that they are meet in and with peace. And once they've brought that peace, the response then, or what happens next, is up to the other people in the household. It's up to the receivers of that peace. If the household don't want you there, Jesus says, then don't stick around, knocking louder and louder, making more and more of a fuss. Jesus says, leave. If you are welcomed in, though, he says, then they are to stay at this house. And this then becomes a bit of a uh, base of operations for the time that they're in this town. They're not to be looking down the road, looking at uh, different sets of accommodation or different menus that might be often on offer at different houses. They're to be content where they are, where they're ministering. If the town wants them there, then they are to accept the hospitality that is given to them. And this actually becomes quite important later on in like the book of Acts, where they move into the Gentile, groups of Gentile people who eat very different foods to what the Jews thought that they could and should be eating. Jesus says, accept what is given to you. And as they are there, they are to heal the sick and they are to tell them that God's kingdom is coming. It's just about here. To spread the word about all that is being done and to bring blessing in Jesus' name. But if they try house after house after house after house in the town and no one accepts this offering of peace, then, well, Jesus says no means no. Shake off the dust from the sandals. Let anyone who will listen know that the kingdom of God has come so close. But then move on. Jesus then has some scary words. Because Sodom, the town that was destroyed in Genesis, 
where the people were doing gross and despicable things. Come judgment day, any town that rejects the news of the kingdom of God, they've put themselves to the same fate. Now, it was at this point during the week that I was contemplating just choosing a different passage. I don't even want to, what do I do with this? It was tempting just to choose something else because it just seems a bit too hard. But whatever it does, whatever it, whatever it says, at the least it highlights how important Jesus sees this mission as being. It highlights how high the stakes are that Jesus sees his mission as being. People are being given the chance to become followers and workers and participants in the kingdom of God. To reject that, to stay doing things their own way, is to choose a path that leads to destruction, says Jesus. Is that physical destruction, metaphorical, spiritual, eternal destruction? Well, I'm not sure. But this highlights that there are consequences to our decisions, consequences to our actions, and these can be immense. So what about traveling light? What about not taking anything and relying on God to provide their daily provisions by the people that they meet through everyone else? The NIV puts it, take no purse, don't take a bag, don't take your sandals with you. Well, before we leave our wallet and our shoes at home all the time and only take a comb and toothbrush wherever we go, towards the end of Luke, in chapter 22, Jesus actually changes things up. He gives a different instruction to the disciples. In Luke 22, this is right before he is about to be taken captive, before he's about to be tried, found guilty, of, found guilty, killed, and things are going to get nasty. He tells his disciples, remember this time? Remember this time when I sent you out with nothing and you were completely fine? You were looked after well. Well, Jesus says later on in Luke chapter 22, things are about to change. This time, get your purse, get your bag, and if you can, get a sword. Very different instructions. The sword is probably for self-defense, and it seems the disciples don't actually do that after Jesus' resurrection anyway. But this difference, this correction from a previous command is noteworthy. I don't think it's that Jesus got it wrong the first time and then had to correct himself. Because it actually worked out amazingly the first time. They all ate fine. They were looked after Well, amazing things were done, but the situation has changed. Now, later on, before Jesus is about to be crucified, they're going to have to look after their own resources. The world's going to become more hostile towards them. Their leader is about to be crucified, and a similar fate is going to come, is going to meet most of these followers. And things did get increasingly hard in the first century. There was intense persecution. So, What this highlights, I think, is the need for different approaches in different contexts. Just because something worked well the first time doesn't mean that it will again and we should continue on the same way forever and ever. Some intelligence is required, as well as submission to God, to work out, to assess, consider what resources, what approach is best needed in any given situation. Okay, so... From these instructions, I can summarize, we can come up with some common principles that I think would apply to all different contexts of mission, all different contexts of ministry. Three different principles. One, the importance of community, the importance of trust building. 
In this case, it was around the table. They go into a place and they accept food and they have meals in people's houses, eating and being welcomed into houses. Through this, they form relationships. They build trust where they can. This is important. Two, they take care of people's needs. It was physical needs that are mentioned here. They heal the sick. They heal people with miraculous powers. Miracles still happen today. Maybe not in the same way, but we're still capable of meeting people's needs, miraculous or not, physical and other different needs. So we build trust and we care for people's needs. And three, the gospel and the kingdom of God should be proclaimed. I got to this point in the list and, again, I felt a little bit awkward. I started thinking about all the things that I lead here some of the youth ministries that we have here at the church, which we've divided up into a bunch of different goals that we're trying to achieve for some of our different things that we run. Like Toddler Jam, on one end, we're just focusing on having fun and friendship or reading at the schools, the same thing. We want to build trust. We want to care for people's needs, numbers one and two. It's only when we get to activities, things like youth group, that we start to include intentional God talks, God specific talks and times so does this list of three mean that we need to rethink the validity of things like toddler jam which we spend considerable time and resources money from lots of different people where we don't have a sermon we don't have a devotion we don't have a prayer specific prayer time at all well i don't think so because while i think it's healthy to continually be considering coming back to asking if our actions and efforts, if they are being directed well, they're good questions to ask. Are we on the right track? I think proclaiming that God's kingdom is close can be as simple as people knowing that we are Christians, that we believe in God and that this changes how we live and we can proclaim that in different ways. It doesn't have to be a specific sermon or God time, God talk time. It can be sharing the gospel more overtly. It can be sharing experiences with Jesus, the differences has made to the world. But how the kingdom of God can be proclaimed, I think, needs to vary in different contexts. But the driving force, the consistent theme of the mission, that we're on the mission that Jesus calls us to, be it at Toddler Jam, be it at Youth Group, here on a Sunday, or whatever it is you do day by day, whatever it is that you do week by week, moment by moment, the underlying drive should be an expectation that the kingdom of God is close. And we are to proclaim that. We are to proclaim it in how we act and what we say. But we're to do that in ways that build trust, come out of a place, a foundation of trust, and out of a place that meets people's needs. Lastly, Jesus' mission involves acknowledging that this is God's story. This is God's kingdom that we're a part of. It's not our, just our mission. We're stepping into God's mission. And so again, Jesus highlights the importance of the message that people are being asked to respond to. This is an important message and we have again big pronouncements showing that rejecting Jesus is actually rejecting life. I read it and it seems harsh and it seems to be lacking in things like grace and compassion And it causes some anxiety within myself. What do we say about this? How do we interpret that doom to these towns? Woe 
to these towns. Destruction. But really, I think it comes down to this word, reject. If a town or if an individual is so caught up within themselves, in worshipping themselves and their own story and what they can do, acknowledging their own achievements, in idolising things and seeking life and importance just within themselves, well then there's not much that God can do. If the offer is given, if the call goes out, if peace is offered, yet the choice is rejection of that, well it ends up being a self-fulfilling judgment that people step into where what is desired rejection of God is found and allowed to happen I struggle with this but I found a resource that has helped me I've really appreciated C.S. Lewis's book The Great Divorce on this and in that book he tells the story of the journey to heaven and he highlights through this story that those that are in hell actually choose to stay there, preferring their own company than anyone else's. I actually really love the book. have listened to the audio version several times. Is it exactly how heaven and hell work? Probably not. It's a piece of narrative fiction, but it's really helped me in coming to terms, coming to grips with this judgment from a graceful God and how that might work. Simply, God is continually committed to this idea of free will. He lets those that reject him to be able to reject him, which includes rejecting all that he offers. Importantly, even if this rejection is chosen, God still loves, though. First and foremost, God loves. Mike Bullard preached this last week. It was a great sermon. Uh, Listen online if you missed it. But it was about our identity being in and with God. First and foremost, not because of what we might achieve, not because of what we've done, but just because God does love us, no matter what. And here, Jesus affirms that this is the primary cause for celebration. The 70, they come back. They report great news. The trip was a success. Even demons moved out of the way when they mentioned Jesus' name. And this is quite exciting, isn't it? The stuff of nightmares has no say when Jesus steps in. The things of anxiety and insecurity run away, lose power against Jesus. But as exciting as this is, it's nothing compared to the fact that they are going to be with God forever, for eternity. That's the best bit. That's who they are. They are loved and they are known by God. If you're anything like me, we so easily get caught up in assessing people based on what they do. Looking at people's achievements or resumes to judge whether someone is worthy or not. If someone says, did you hear what such and such did? We form an opinion about them, good or bad. We look to the stars, as in the Hollywood type, the famous, the big achievers, the miraculous healers, and compare our works to theirs. But Jesus here reminds us, yes, that's great, that demons are fleeing. It's great that good things are being done, but don't just stay celebrating that. Celebrate that you are loved by God. You are known by God. And in choosing to respond to him, you step into life. You step into purpose in a whole bigger and better way. That's what you should be celebrating. So, I was wondering, what is the main point here? And in preparing, 
I was feeling some pressure within myself to find a new motivational angle, a new profound insight or perspective or application from this text. But I think it serves us well to just be reminded from time to time of our story, the story that we are a part of, the task that we have been called to. You may have heard all of this before. I may have said all of this before, but I think that's all right. I think that's a good thing. Today we remember that we are known by God. And we remind ourselves that we are called to be stepping out into what he has called us to be, into what he has called us to do as well. And we need to continually keep coming back to this over and over and over and over. What is God's mission? What is our mission and our place in that? We all have different areas that we can bring blessing. And we can do this in Jesus' name. In doing so, we're painting a picture. We're proclaiming what the kingdom of God looks like. We proclaim how close the kingdom of God is. So today, we have a chance to again accept this mission from God. For the first time, or maybe as a reaffirmation, accepting it again. In doing so, I think we accept to bring peace in our interactions. We are called to bring healing where we can. We are to to declare that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are alive and well and are working towards making this world fully their kingdom. So is there an action, something you can do? Is there a group of people that you don't have contact with or that you do have contact with where you can more purposefully follow, step into Jesus' mission. Somewhere where you can build trust. Focus on building trust and relationship. Somewhere you can bring healing and meet people's needs and through this and with this appropriately declare that you believe Jesus' kingdom is at hand. Everybody, everyone is called to be partakers in this mission. God's mission. Some people, they'll go far away, a long way to do that to the ends of the earth. Some people will stay locally and share it with family and friends, but we are all called to do something. It's not just the missionary's job. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the disciples, the close group of disciples' job. Every believer, every follower of Christ is called into this, representing Christ and declaring, proclaiming his kingdom. As we do this, we remember that this isn't our story, our mission this is God's story and we celebrate this as we go we celebrate that we get to be a part of this we're going to step into a time of communion which Jesus commanded his followers to do in remembrance of him it was again at this time just before Jesus was put on trial before he was killed And before he resurrected back into life, he said, this blood is like the juice, that his body is like the bread. And he said to be a follower is to step into, is to partake in internalizing him, which involves stepping into his mission as well. To step onto the same path that Jesus steps into. So as we take the juice, as we take the bread, We'll consider, we'll think about, we'll reflect on. We have a chance to reaffirm or affirm our commitment 
to that mission? Is there a conversation that you can have? Is there somewhere where more trust can be built? Is there somewhere where more needs could be met, miraculously or not? As we do that, we affirm that we are God's, that God knows us, God sees us, God God loves us. We'll hold on to the bread, we'll hold on to the juice, and we'll eat and we'll drink together. But if we can have the four volunteers to come and help pass these out, that would be great.